everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the green? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Ah, welcome to Everything Old is New Again. It's nice to have Rod Serling introduce us, young, uh, wondrous David Cohen. Yes, yes. How about that? Wasn't it great? Like, every time he used to show up on the Twilight Zone episode, he would just, like, step into frame, and he always had that cigarette. Remember that? Yes. Like, he was smoking right yes. there. And he's just, he looks so cool, you know? I just, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about impression. the effect of that cigarette later on in our show here on Everything Old is New Again as we uh, experience all things Rod Serling with the author of a terrific new book, Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Not just talking about the Twilight Zone, although that certainly is what he's most commonly referred to now 60 years after the beginning uh, and premiere of that show. We're here with Nicholas Parisi. Nicholas, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you, Doug and Dave. Thanks. Uh, it's great to, to experience uh, so much fun speaking last week and now this week about Rod Serling with the one member, or a member of the Board of Directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable foundation organized and dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. He's also a former staff writer and editor of drumroll the good times magazine a very popular magazine here on long island for all things uh pop culture and music for, really yeah it's been around for a long long time yes so we'll get to that in a minute my first question to nicholas uh, parisi is do you see that the legacy of rod serling's work including the twilight zone but through all of his work uh, that you see remnants of it still in our pop culture today oh no question about it I, I mean you see his influence uh, the influence of the Twilight Zone particularly we've seen it in a dozen movies um, that have been certainly influenced by the Twilight Zone I, I won't even get into the you know the, the titles but I think we can all guess the titles and that's not to say that they're uh, you know borrowing uh, in a, some weird wrong way or anything it's just there there's an influence there yes and and I mean there's nothing more uh, specific than the new Twilight Zone series that's coming out uh, this year on CBS All Access. So Jordan Peele is in charge of the new a uh, new re- uh, reimagining Dave of, of the of the Twilight Zone, and I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what what Jordan Peele does with it. And I, I think another show that gained a lot of popularity and I might have had something to do with the relaunch of Twilight Zone is Black Mirror, the the show on. I believe it's air, it airs on Netflix if I'm if I'm correct, but that that was uh, you know definitely influenced by by uh, Twilight Zone and has become quite popular on its own. I don't think it's good, but eh, you know. I also you saw so mentioned movies. One that comes to mind is that uh, uh, the one with uh, M Night Shyamalan, the one I see dead people. When I saw that movie and the ending where you know is the twist that the one character you think is is alive is dead. 
did that you tell me that came to the minute I walked out of the movie theater I said M. Night Shyamalan must be a huge uh, Rod Sterling fan and uh, somewhat of a uh, copier of uh, I don't think there's any <laughs> doubt about it yes that, that particular movie is definitely Twilight Zone-esque no, yeah, no doubt about it and I think M. Night's most of his career thereafter most of what he did has he looks for those t- twists I was at least put it that way yeah I, I, I think he almost got pigeonholed into that and yes. now he's, he's required to have the twist and, and if you don't have the hit, key- sometimes he doesn't but think about how how difficult it must be to do it. What did he had? Ninety three episodes. 92, I think he wrote. Yes, yeah. For the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling did right. it ninety three or ninety two. I'm sorry, ninety two times. And let's even just go by his numbers. Sixty sixty three of those times were successful. I think they all were. But you know, <laughs> try to do that sixty three times. Yes. Yeah. It's like trying to do everything old is new again and do 253 shows and all of them be spontaneous and, and stellar shows. Right. And we've had maybe four. So it's oh, really <laughs> tough to do. I was going to say only geniuses like us can do that. I was taking the other standpoint. All right. Now let's get back to it. I think with respect to the effect in our pop culture, you could also see it through uh, William Shatner on, <laughs> believe it or not, a number of years back, uh, Third Rock from the Sun. So how was your trip, sir? Horrifying at first. I looked out the window, and I saw something on the wing of the plane. <laughs> the same thing happened to me. With John Lithgow, if anybody's sort of not too popular anymore, but John Lithgow worked, certainly did the movie version of 20,000, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, right? Yeah, what a, what a great in-joke that was. Yes, yeah. yes, they both played that particular part. <laughs> and Shatner goes to conventions, and he, if, he, if he's asked, he'll talk about the fact that his kids uh, love, when, especially during the when he was younger, uh, to, when he was traveling on an airplane, for them to, him to call over, or the kids would call over, the stewardess or the flight attendant, and Shatner would be by the window, and they'd say, yes, can I help you? And Shatner would give them the look, you know, right. and... And uh, the, the kids would say, Dad, give her the look, give her the look. Shatner just loves to tell that story that you know, to this day. And, right. uh, he, he really uh, got a kick out of being on that show twice, I think, uh, when yes. Shatner was yeah, on. That's right. Episodes. Oh, yeah. Another one was one of my favorites, too. With the with, in the, the booth, future. right? Predicting the future, which is you know, it's it just it, we'll get to it. But he had uh, uh, the ability, Rod Serling, to attract uh, such tremendous stars uh, on his show. Let's just listen. If you haven't seen what we're referencing here, or uh, can listen to it, maybe it'll bring some memories. What's going on? He's pulling up one of the cowling pipes. There's a man out there. Well, you know, that's a little piece of it. But that's William Shatner acting or overacting. I don't know. He didn't come out and say anything negative about William Shatner, though, did he ever? Oh, no, absolutely not. And I, and I got to say, William Shatner gives a terrific performance in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and in Nick of Time, which is the episode you had mentioned uh, about. And, and Richard Matheson wrote both of those episodes. And Richard Matheson loved Shatner's performance in, in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet particularly. Right. And yeah, see, Math- I, see, I think Shatner always overacts, but I think in that episode it, it actually really worked. Now, yeah. Richard Matheson, we had a theory when we talk about zombies. Richard Matheson did uh, the original uh, zombie work. I forget the top title. I Am Legend. Right, I Am I Legend. Legend. And uh, and I don't know that Richard Matheson would have done that, this is stretching, had not William Shatner and, and Rod Serling uh, produced all of his work and make him famous, so to speak, and give him the confidence to do I Am Legend. So therefore, we say that Rod Serling and... Uh, and, and 
uh, William Shatner are the f- grandfathers, we'll say, of all things zombie. We're saying, doing it tongue-in-cheek, but it's a long road to go, but they had some influence, no? Uh, yeah, that is, that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a little Twilight Zony. Exactly. Know. Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about an episode, Walking Distance, which I just think is an amazing episode. Let's just hear a, a little piece of it to refresh your memory as to what this was, and let's dive into it with Nicholas Parisi. Mark, I only wanted to tell you that this is a wonderful time of life for you. Don't let any of it go by without enjoying it. And also, like all men, perhaps there'll be an occasion when he'll look up from what he's doing and listen to the distant music of a calliope and hear the voices and the laughter of the people and the places of his past. And perhaps across his mind, there'll flit a little errant wish that a man might not have to become old. Now, this is a very poignant, I think, episode where a gentleman goes back in time, however it happens, meets his own parents and meets him as a, as a child, meets himself as a child, and says, I just wanted to tell you, man, have some fun. Enjoy the life now. Then he meets his dad later on, and dad says, listen, you got to get out of here. And by the way, stop looking back, look forward, enjoy your life now looking forward. Uh, Nicholas, am I wrong or right? I mean, was that was that something that sticks with you? Oh, it's it's probably my, my all-time favorite episode. It is, you know, Rod Serling at his at his most Serling esque. I mean, this was Rod Serling with his heart completely on his sleeve, uh, which is one of the reasons I think we love Rod Serling is that he was not afraid to wear his heart on his sleeve as a writer. He was he got criticized sometimes for being too preachy or too you know too uh, on the nose with this type of stuff sometimes. But there, if you were the if you were the choir, you didn't mind being preached to, and I don't mind being preached to particularly in this episode. You know, Rod Serling, just to give some background quickly, is that you know Rod Serling grew up in Binghamton, New York, and when he was 18 years old, barely 18 years old, he went off to war. Uh, he joined the, the army, and he went off, and he fought in the Philippines, and he came back scarred from it. He came back uh, really just scarred for the rest of his life, and for the rest of his life, he just wanted to return to that innocent time in Binghamton when he was a kid, and when he got to ride the carousel and eat cotton candy, and, and just before before the war, before Pearl, Pearl Harbor, and that's what this episode is all about. This episode is about a man who just, just wants to go back and, and just taste that one more time. And as you said, it ends on a somewhat optimistic note with the, his father saying, hey, if you go back to your own time, there's cotton candy there, there's band concerts there, you just got to stop looking in the past and you know look for them around you. And he goes back with that, you know, being a little bit wiser at the end of the episode. And I, I love the, I love this particular episode. Exactly. I, I, I Very well said. I can't add anything to it other than to say that uh, Mr. Parisi was an editor for a magazine on Long Island we've talked about, Good Times Magazine. When David and I were in high school, we were uh, in a band that David created a song, uh, and it doesn't uh, sound perfect here, but it was called The Twilight Zone. And I'm going to play a little piece of it when we get back back from the break. I'll tell you why I play this song and how it relates to the Good Times magazine. The background of this and everything old is new again. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. The use of traveling back in time is a very effective way of producing contrasts, producing a kind of a freewheeling storytelling device, which is why I used going back in time. And there's another reason, is that every writer has certain special preoccupations and predilections. In my case, it's a hunger to be young again. 
a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running threat and through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to convey that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. And we're back on Everything Old is New again with David Cohen and Nicholas Parisi, author of Rod Serling's Life, Work, and Imagination. Uh, look up uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com and uh, or your local bookstore and, and get this book. It's it's so much fun. We're having two shows here, and we can't cover just a smidge of what's in this, in this book. That was Rod Serling talking about basically being nostalgic and one of the themes that he has throughout uh, his writing. And I would ask Nicholas Parisi, you know, Everything Old is New again is a show that... That, uh, we take a look at entertainment from the past and we want to see you know where it developed and, and what entertainment there is today that builds upon the foundation of the past do you think that's something that rod serling along the lines of what he was saying would have agreed with the theme of our show in some way in some way yes uh, he was a nostalgic kind of guy so he did uh he he treasured it he treasured his memories he treasured um you know what he grew up with the things that he grew up with at the same time though rod serling was also um a progressive guy he he did not he did not uh, other than his character Characters may have gotten stuck in the past, but Rod Serling, other than you know yearning for the for, for that past, he didn't get stuck there. He did move along in terms of his art, in terms of writing, in terms of movies, in terms of he was he he did progress with the times, but he did always have just that affection for you know for nostalgic you know for his past. And I think David, that's exactly what we do, and then and, and we always bring forward something new to the entertainment that's happening, whether it's characters or just the guests or or whatever we do on our show uh, that we try to uh, show the modern day take this nostalgic look at the future we'll say right so do you think Serling would have even listened to our show what do you think I don't know if he would have listened to it, but but if he was forced to listen to it, I think he'd appreciate it. Yeah. Would he have listened to that song that we just heard in the last section uh, from the news? Yeah, then he the would Twilight have sued Zone. us because if I remember correctly, we used we, we used the Twilight Zone theme doo -doo 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 -doo, as part of that song. Exactly. Which, which we would have looked illegal. forward to that. At least we would have become famous for something. That, Infamous is better than nothing. I, I guess. Know. The reason why I say that is because we're here with the editor of this magazine that existed back in the 70s when we did that song and were a band in 1979. I don't know that you were an editor of the magazine. No, then. I came along lo long after that. But you've heard about this, this review. I know it's on a board somewhere. <laughs> For the news, I'm going to read you this. I can see if we can get a kick out of this. The news headlines their performances with the best of the Beatles, Cars, Nick, Kinks in the Knack and the records, as well as Dave's popish New Wavis original. The band has an inbred sense of humor. They perform the version of the Twilight Zone theme that stands out as their best live tune. They also include various psych eggs in their act and the group peppers their show with general comic relief. And they have a demo tape blah blah and there's a quote, our originals have a unique new original sound and our live show is a gas. That's the review wow. in the Good Times magazine right here. Who I wrote that? It. Did you write that? No, I don't know who wrote that. I was going to ask Nick if you have any idea who wrote I that. no idea. No idea. <laughs> How about that for a kick? What wow. did you do as the editor? What was that all about? Oh, I was, well I, I wrote for, uh, you know, I wrote music reviews like that and uh, CD reviews and you know things like that for good times and I also worked there as you know editing uh, you know editing copy and that kind of stuff yeah. uh, so you're great at looking at you went back 60 years to review all the material and more oh, yeah. beyond 60 years to review Rod Serling's life work and imagination I'm sure you still have the keys uh, of imagination and to the good times magazine so if you feel like going back and finding out a little more about the news and what inspired that review <laughs> and, and if you want them to come back and do a reunion <laughs> 
Truman Show, <laughs> yeah. then then I would definitely seek psychiatric help. Of course, it's all in jest, but we were touching <laughs> upon the Twilight Zone, and we did a song. I figured I'd throw that out there. For... Let's take a look at Changing of the Guard, though, a show that I think is very poignant also and shows some of the themes of the Twilight Zone and of Rod Serling with respect to looking back and, and with respect to the future. I died in Roanoke, Virginia, sir. I was conducting research on x-ray treatment for cancer. I was exposed to radioactivity and I contracted leukemia. That was an incredibly brave thing you did, but... I kept remembering, Professor, something you told me. A quote, a poet named Walter. He said, I would be true, for there are those who trust me. I would be pure, for there are those who care. I would be strong, for there is much to suffer. And I would be brave, for there is much to dare. I never forgot that, Professor. That was something that you, you left me. Now, Nicholas Parisi, uh, are you familiar, of course, with that episode and uh, your thoughts, uh, just generally speaking? Sure. Well, yeah, a couple of things about that particular episode. First, uh, Donald Pleasance, you know, starred in it, and he's terrific in it. But, uh, you know, that that episode, you know, ties back to Rod Serling's college days when he, he went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and Antioch's first president was Horace Mann. And Horace Mann is famous for his quote, uh, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. Mm. That is uh, something he said to the, uh, to the graduating class in his first year there, and it was repeated to the graduating class of Antioch every single year after that and Donald Pleasance the character there quotes that particular line and he he believes that he hasn't lived up to that that admonition and you know contemplates suicide because he hasn't uh, left and made some mark on humanity and these ghosts come back to tell him yes you did this is what you did for us and and that's uh, it's typical Rod Serling again I know it's putting you on the spot and we all wreck our brain do you see anything in entertainment whether it be movies or television today that approaches themes like this, inspirational and or, you know, looking at teachers and learning. And I mean, there was Dead Poets, Poets Society, yes. But I'm just saying, like, just in general, I'm not saying there's none of this in entertainment today. That's not fair to say. But to see it so well done and lasting 60 years. And if you watch that episode, it's as, as relevant today as it was back then. No? It is. It is. And that's, you know, it's amazing about the Twilight Zone in general that it's really the only black and white series that today is is relevant, really. I mean, and I love lots of black and white television series, but none of them are like the Twilight Zone. None of them we're really still talking about. I mean, we're not talking about I Love Lucy. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about it on this <laughs> particular show, but, but you know, there was a, there was a magazine not, uh, that came out not too long ago that it was a British magazine, and it ranked the top 100 television series of all time. And it wasn't just science fiction or fantasy or anything. It was top 100, and the only black and white television series on the cover was The Twilight Zone. And surrounding it was Mad Men and Game of Thrones and, you know, Seinfeld. And it, but The Twilight Zone, you know, it's the, it's the only one we're, we're talking about like this. And, and a gigantic reason for that is just the themes that Rod Serling was dealing with were timeless. And also those best ofs, I object to many of them, even with baseball and all, because it's made by a 30-year-old who wasn't exposed to and doesn't appreciate sometimes the past. So to see that they even were able to break through that wall, exactly. you know what I'm saying, of that sort of, I didn't see it, so I didn't grow up with it, so it doesn't mean anything. There's <laughs> yeah. a little bit of that that goes on with those lists too, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, and to see that, that well, he was able to break through even that, if that even exists, I'm just saying, is, is an amazing uh, treat, uh, if I will. Now, I would want to play another one here that hits topics that you don't always uh, hear also, uh, that he hit a lot, anti-war, and also father-son relationships and a love of each other, which I don't see much in television today either. How come you're 10 years old again? 
doesn't make any difference now, Pop. We're here and we're together. We can go on some rides. Sure we can. But as God is my witness, Pip, no man ever, ever loved a boy any more than I love you. I'm dying, Pop. I'm sorry, but I have to go back. Hey, God, I'll make a deal with you. I give you the sodden carcass of, of an aging, weak idiot. I give you me. All you have to give back is Pip. I mean, it's hard to grasp in a couple of seconds here. But, David, you going to say something? No, I... I yeah, well, I, I... That one was... Uh, I remember that vividly, and um, and I love Walter. I mean, I love Jack Klugman. Um, I, I I don't know. It was a little sappy for me. It, it, it hit. It hit for me because uh, well, that base. Long story short, is uh, this gentleman's son is not is that young boy, but that's part of the Twilight Zone. His son is dying in Vietnam, and long story short, he gets to experience an hour with him uh, through the magic of Twilight Zone, and then uh, exchanges his life for his son. Right. So, I mean, a theme like that, Nicholas, I mean, this is something that he had many times, or uh, was that the only time he did something father-son? And Well, the father-son the father -son, uh, dynamic, uh, he did hit on it a few times, if not necessarily, I mean, uh, uh, directly father-son. I mean, there's a, a particular episode of the uh, of Night Gallery called The Messiah on Mott Street, which is about a grandfather and, a gran and his grandson who have this tie. And uh, it's a, that's a beautiful story about this grandfather who's on his deathbed and wants to stay alive for his grandson because they're all they have for each other. And this episode, in praise of Pip, is uh, I yeah it hit for me too. I, I love this episode, and and one just kind of it's a trivia a, a trivia you know, aspect of this episode. I point out in the book is that it turns out that essentially the first half of this episode, in praise of Pip, actually he Routsarong took it verbatim from an earlier script they had written for uh, for craft theater called Next of Kin. Uh, he's it's essentially the same story up until the point that he goes into the Twilight Zone. The point that the Jack Klugman character goes into the Twilight Zone and meets Pip. That's original to the Twilight Zone, but in the old other story, it just ends where he's in the the mob bosses. Uh, if you remember, he goes right. to meet this mob boss who is, uh, you know, uh, handling his betting uh, uh, receipts, and he gets threatened and whatever. So that 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 was almost verbatim, right up until that point in Next of Kin, an early episode now, that he wrote. I will say this to David Cohn: When did you see the episode? Do you remember, like years and years ago? Like so, years and years ago, and then I saw it after I became a dad. So okay, because yeah. I was going to say because when I, I saw it originally, it meant nothing to me, and it, it was one of my least favorite. I saw it last night, and uh, I don't know. It, it really had an effect upon me. I have a six year old, and it was relatable to the, to this character and so forth. It, it, Listen, it's very personal, too, of what he does. He's not going to hit you know, every theme. He's not going to hit every person. But we're still talking about it 60 years later. Sure. And yeah. what a performance by Jack Klugman. Are I wrong? Yeah, I was going to sound like a broken record because I keep saying how great the yeah. actors were. But but Jack Klugman was top, was tops. Uh, Jack Klugman was probably Rod Serling's favorite actor. And he, he starred in four different episodes. This is a, tre a tremendous performance. Uh, per earlier one called uh, well, A Game of Pool, which is a George Clayton, mm. George Clayton Johnson episode, one of my favorites. And A Passage for Trumpet was another Rod Sterling episode that star Jack Klugman, and he's tremendous in that yeah, as well. Yeah, you, you like Odd Couple, you see these, you go, that's the same guy? Like, yeah, what a range. The man was yeah. tremendous. All right, we'll be back, and everything old is new again. Uh, to continue all things Rod Sterling, we may talk about a little bit of uh, that uh, Night Gallery show. Why not? It's the theme of that show, believe it or not. Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Welcome, art lovers. We offer for your approval a still life, if you will, of noise. A soundless canvas suggestive of sound. Some ghosts come back to haunt. 
Others come back simply to pick up where they left off. Our painting is called Pamela's Voice. And this is the Night Gallery. And this is everything old is new again, admiring the work of Rod Serling and even more so admiring the work of art that was just created by Nicholas Parisi, this 550-page book, well worth it. Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. You're going to learn things that you never knew before about Rod Serling and entertainment in general. And there was one episode I remember called The Eyes. And that was in the original uh, pilot, they call it, but it was a movie with three separate stories. And I think Rod Serling created, I think, right, this whole concept of looking at a painting and let's tell the story behind the painting? Yes, that that was his idea. Yeah, he he wrote it was that was the uh, the the hook in the pilot film of those three episodes. They all began with a painting, and that's how the series was was. Pitched. Which to me is genius. I mean, it's just so simple, but so perfect. You know, they wanted an anthology, something not Twilight Zone. How do you introduce it? Take a look at this picture. We'll tell you the story. Yeah, in fact, his his original idea after the Twilight Zone was to do something similar in a wax museum. It was going to be called Rod Serling's Wax Museum, and it would begin with Rod Serling kind of taking a stroll through this through this spooky wax. museum museum and he would stop at a figure and he would he would take the curtain off of the figures and that would be the the a character in this particular episode he would tell you about the character and then it would go into the story and he basically just traded uh, wax figures for paintings pretty cool and yeah. i just just for kicks uh <laughs> one that was pretty interesting had uh, joan crawford and steven spielberg directing her in eyes i just want to take a look meyer the talent that surrounded rod serling in the beginning of this series or at least for that first movie did he have control over hiring Spielberg and Crawford or was was he never in control of this series at all? Uh, he certainly had a lot more control of that movie than he had of the series itself right. and I don't know if he specifically hired you know any of them but uh, he certainly had a say because I mean I saw lists uh, that he made himself of who he would like to cast in different parts in this film hmm. uh, The in that particular episode Eyes Tom Bosley uh, appears in, in oh, Eyes wow. he plays a, uh, a gambling addict uh, who gives up his eyes for Joan Crawford's character well, guess what? Rod Serling wanted Jack Klugman for that particular part. He, his preferred person was Jack Klugman. He probably wanted Jack Klugman for everything, to tell you the <laughs> truth. But, but uh, so yeah, so he certainly was at least able to give the uh, you know the studio his preferences and whether they took them or not. Now I met Jack Klugman at a, a bookstore in Huntington uh, years and years ago. Long story short, I asked him about Rod Serling. He basically told me there was a time, and this is now on YouTube. He, it must be the same story. He said there was a time when he was acting with Art Carney. I never saw this episode. I don't know what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. Where the two of them were involved and were they were acting and improving and showing emotions of happiness the two of them because one character just finally sold I think is a script and the director said wait a minute um, there are lines here you guys aren't saying the lines and they called Rod Serling and had him come to the set and Rod Serling's and, and they asked you know Rod could you tell them to do the lines Rod says let me see what they're doing and Jack Klugman and, and Art Carney was doing such a tremendous job of promoting the emotion of the scene Rod Serling for one of the first times when I understand said alright you know what forget the words do what you can but what's on there is magic I, people will understand it because of the emotion of that and that was again Jack Klugman that's absolutely true the, the show was called The Velvet Alley it was a, a Playhouse 90 co-starring Jack Klugman and Art Carney and, to, and, and and to Jack, Jack Klugman and Art Carney were, were Rod Serling's probably two favorite actors. He right. loved Art Carney uh-huh. just this much less, you know, if that, you know, than Jack right. Klugman. They were and, his odd and, couple, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. And that was the one time he got to have them both in his uh, particular show in well, the so I never Alley. understood it. So that was a Playhouse 90. Yes, that's why yeah, it didn't make yeah, sense to it me. Was, okay. And it's a great, uh, great show. Yeah. And that's something. So he was really attuned to the actors, too. And, and like, you know, I'm just saying, like, sometimes writers are writing and then they put the script off to send it off and that's it. He had a talent for 
talent. Yes, yes, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, another example from Playhouse 90 is a show called The Dark Side of the Earth, which uh, co-starred, it was Van Heflin, but it co-starred Earl Holloman, who starred in the Twilight Zone pilot, Where Is Everybody? And the story that Earl Holloman tells about that particular story is that Rod Serling was on set and Earl Holloman went to him and said, you know, I I feel like this character would say something else about this other character, Van Heflin's character. I think he would say something to him about his background, about what they did. And he said, you know, he said he was amazed, Earl Holloman was, that Rod Serling didn't say, you know, go back to acting. You know, I'm, I'm the writer. You know, you, you take care of your job. I'll take care of my job. He says Rod Serling wrote down what he was saying, wrote down and basically used, rewrote the script and used those lines that Earl Holloman gave him. And he said, I never got over that. I never got over how this guy didn't have an ego about what right. I was suggesting to him. And th- that is the way that Rod Serling was with actors. He, if you're a good actor, he respected your input and he would he would work with it. And he didn't just play the Hollywood game of saying everyone's great. Obviously, you've no, heard that already no. with Dennis Hopper right. or whatever. Definitely you not. Know, he, right. he, so that was, you know, he said he liked you. You could respect that. Mm-hmm. Now, with respect to the Night Gallery, at some point he lost more and more control over it. But why did the producers of this show not respect his opinion? Apparently, uh, yeah. Well, it's a, it's kind of a long story. Oh. Well, 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 I can sum it up in two in two words. Honestly, <laughs> the the two words that I can sum it up with are Jack Laird. Jack Laird was the producer of Night Gallery, and Jack Laird and Rod Serling simply did not get along. Uh, and in my research, Jack Laird is the one person in Rod Serling's life in his career that Rod Serling did not get along with. I mean, Rod Serling got along with everybody. He really, he really, truly did. And Jack Laird and he just did not connect from day one. And so the creative part. Partnership, if it was ever going to be such a thing, never materialized because they they didn't they didn't see eye to eye. And not only that, but Jack Laird, and this will be the you know kind of dun, 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 Jack Laird did not think Rod Serling was a good writer. <laughs> I mean, Jack Jack Laird just did, was not a fan of Rod Serling's Why work. Why did he hire him to begin with? Well, it was Rod Serling. I mean, Rod Serling's name was on the show, and right, and, and right. you know, so so Rod Serling at this point, you have to understand, was was an, uh, he was forty five years old, and or yeah, about forty five years old, and he was he was burned out. He was burned out ten years earlier. So when he started Night Gallery as a series, he did not demand creative control of the series, and I think he did it. He, Rod Serling gave lots of answers for why he did this, but I think the true answer is that he didn't want it. He didn't want creative control because he didn't want to put in those hours again. He didn't want to put 16 hours a day into a series. But what he thought was, he thought that his name would carry some weight. He thought he would have his say in in the shows because he was Rod Serling, and his name was on the show, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. But what happened was Jack Laird. Jack Laird said, this is my show. They put me in charge of producing this show, and he didn't particularly like Rod Serling's work, and that was the beginning of the end uh, for the only thing I can say is what a fool what an absolute fool Jack Laird yeah (laughs) you look him up what else did he do I mean I guarantee I don't know this guy from Adam I don't know I haven't researched it but I guarantee he didn't do a heck of a lot of success Uh, not not a lot not a lot yeah Not, not he didn't have the career of someone that would looking at his work 60 years later with a brand new book Rod Serling his life work and imagination uh, that's selling like hotcakes uh, Nicholas Parisi let's take a look at something else that might be unknown to some people really did it you maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Ah, it's that's a- the first swear word that's ever been on our show in over 250 episodes. Well, that was actually on our first, our second show as well, the same exact clip. Wow. About that. Sounds like uh, me when the mortgage uh, bill comes in. I think you said that in the second show. <laughs> I think <too>. I did. <laughs> Try to reestablish. Now, uh, what, now, people may not know, even though he's credited uh, on the screen, 
what is his relationship to Planet of the Apes? Yeah, I am amazed that to, to this day, when I say that to people that he co-wrote Planet of the Apes, they, they're, they're shocked. They, they never knew that. Uh, yes, he, he was the first writer. He was the first writer that assigned to write uh, the adaptation of Pierre Boulet's novel, uh, Monkey Planet, was the, you know, the original name of the novel. And he came in uh, very early in the process, right after the book was published, basically, a an organization called King Brothers Productions contacted Rod Serling and said, hey, we got you know an option on this book. We'd like you to write it. And they sent it to him. And he got to work on it immediately. And he wrote a couple of drafts for King Brothers. And then King Brothers went to the wayside. They, I guess they lost their option or whatever it was. And then Arthur Jacobs, the eventual producer, got a hold of the property and officially hired Rod Serling to write it. And Rod wrote uh, numerous drafts of, of the screenplay for Arthur Jacobs. And during this time, the, the Arthur Jacobs believed in this project. He believed that Planet of the Apes was going to be a gigantic smash hit and you know he really really pushed it and he was running into brick walls in Hollywood because they, everybody just thought it was too risky they just they thought it was too big a risk they thought there was the big problem was how are we going to get people to believe that these apes talk you know that, that was the big the big worry of everybody how are we going to make this not a comedy not make people think this is Dr. Doolittle you know and so so after about two years of working on the on the script Rod Serling you know working on the script it still had not sold to anybody, and one of the th- reasons it hadn't sold was because of the budget. The, it was per, it was you know perceived that it was going to be a big budget movie, and again, it was a risky big budget movie. So they wanted to reduce the budget. And one way to do that was that Rod Serling's scripts were set in a modern city. They had the apes in hats and suits and ties, and you know they that's how they they were like us, except they were apes. You know, so so one of the ways to do it was to take it out of the city and bring it back to a pre-industrial civilization, which meant really rewriting Rod Serling's script, and at that that point, I think they almost mutually agreed, listen, that they would part ways because they weren't satisfied with the script anyway. Uh, they weren't satisfied with the dialogue, and and Rod Serling admitted that he basically just written himself out on it. He was burnt out on it. He'd been working on it for years, and so he stepped aside. And Michael Wilson came in, and Michael Wilson basically rewrote all of Rod Serling's dialogue. But what he did was he kept the structure that Rod Serling had created from the novel. Rod Serling took the novel and really made it filmable. He created the plot points that it had to hit to. To, to work, he created the structure of it. He created the ending. Uh, you know, contrary to some you know misinformation in the past, Rod Sterling wrote the ending. It's right. in his early drafts. So he gave it that structure, and then Michael Wilson essentially rewrote all of the dialogue, and they shared credit on the final on the final. And we'll be back book. right after this, and everything old is new again. Rushing through, but hitting all the highlights of the world of uh, Rod Serling. But there's tons, tons more to learn in Rod Serling's life, work, and imagination by Nicholas Parisi. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Do you know why there's night all around us? Do you know what the blackness is? It's the hate he felt, the hate you felt, the hate all of us feel, and there's too much of it. It's just too much. A sickness known as hate. Not a virus, not a microbe, not a germ but a sickness nonetheless, highly contagious, deadly in its effects. Don't look for it in the twilight zone. Look for it in the mirror. Look for it before the light goes out altogether. 
Uh, welcome back to Everything Old is New Again. This is Douglas Viviani with David Cohen. And we're here with Nicholas Parisi, Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. Also, if you want to go to Facebook, uh, go to Rod Serling Dimensions uh, on Facebook. You could look up, uh, what, that's your Facebook page for? For the book, yes. For the book. So take a look at that. It's It's got some great information. to entice you to purchase this great book. Also, we want to look at the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, of which Nicholas Parisi is a on a board of directors. Go to rodserling.com. What are they going to look at when they see that? Well, rodserling.com has uh, well information about uh, about the foundation, but it has all things, all sorts of things about Rod Serling. I mean, it has links to uh, some of his speeches. It has links to uh, you know, pictures and interviews and things like that. So you know, it's it's a resource. Terrific. Now I'm going to ask you real quickly, and I'm not going to go too much detail. You're going to have to re- buy the book for this, but there was a sequel planned uh, that Rod Serling had in mind and was or asked to do, The Dark Side of the Earth, a sequel to The Planet of the Apes. Yeah, well, pretty much immediately after the film opened, it was clear that this was a gigantic hit. It was a worldwide phenomenon, and Rod Serling went to Arthur Jacobs and the, and the studio immediately with some sequel ideas, and they batted some things around. Uh, the Dark Side of the Earth was the title of Rod Serling's outline uh, for a sequel, and it ultimately wasn't uh, wasn't used. And and I mean, they were not crazy about the first uh, idea that this idea, um, or at least some of the early ideas he had, but they were open to more, and they went back. Back and forth, and basically, it, it, as it turned out, he was not going to have time to write the sequel no matter what, so so they, they parted ways at that but point. But take a look at what he had in mind for the sequel. When you buy this book, you'll get a kick out of what he uh, could have been, and uh, was very thoughtful, I think, uh, would have added more uh, than what we did see. That's what I think. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And finally, there was a TV show, and for I understand, he was asked to contribute in some ways to that, no? Yeah, he basically, yeah, he wrote two scripts for the television series, and he basically wrote wrote the Bible for the show. You know, he wrote the outline of what the show was going to be about, about, you know, a couple of humans with an ape with them being chased by the other apes and, you know, uh, as their as their enemy. And, and so he kind of gave it the structure, and his two scripts were not produced, but he, he basically developed it for television. What do you think uh, about the end result of the franchise going the way it did and, and at least the presentation or, or survival of his ending, which I think saves, not saves, but makes the first movie so memorable? Yeah, you know, he was never, uh, he was, uh, we've talked about this before, but he was never one to toot his own horn, so right. he was not. He was certainly never going to say, hey, you know, that ending right. uh, would, you know, uh, propelled the franchise. He never did that. And uh, I believe from what little he said about the sequels were just that he did see, I believe, the the first sequel and I'm not even sure if he saw any of the ones after right. that I'm not I'm not positive so one of his lesser known works lesser thought in his mind and meanwhile still uh, prevails to this day yeah, uh, exactly. as a as a work of art and now we just heard a little piece on the way in of I am the night color me black I would say one of the main themes of his work is also is anti prejudice now I think he worked tirelessly uh, you know I guess against sponsors and and maybe this one of the reasons why the the Twilight Zone itself was an anthology and it was also something that maybe set in a t- science fiction-ish kind of way because he was able to approach a lot of topics like prejudice uh, where maybe he couldn't have done it straight out, no? Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly it. He ran into so many problems with sponsors in his previous attempts to address some of these subjects. He had the power to do it uh, on the Twilight Zone and, and do it in this context. And again, I, I think it was just the, the case of, it, it just became less controversial to do it to do it this way. Right. So he was able to do it, but it was never any less poignant. And in this particular episode, I am the night. Um, it is very powerful. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. You got to look at some of these uh, episodes, and also when you look at this book, uh, Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. You get an Amazon.com. 
you will see some of these episodes, some behind-the-scenes discussion of these episodes and a summary of them and, and maybe a little bit about what went on behind the scenes. I don't want to let on about too much of that. But that's really a lot of fun to hear what Sterling was thinking about these things and what was changed and or what actors we used. And speaking about actors, uh, we spoke about this previously, but let's listen to a little bit about uh, Rod Sterling talking about some of the actors that, that he admired. But the young lady made reference to a marvelous Art Carney piece we did about a drunk who's a, a store Santa Claus, who finds a completely, you know, a bag of plenty, which continues to throw out gifts. And Kearney, well, you talk about beautiful people. Art Kearney has got to be one of the stunning men that I've ever met. Apart from his vast talent is the fact that he's a dear guy and the most predictably good performance. There are just a handful of guys who you never have to worry about. Jack Klugman is another. Walter Matthau is another. He goes on and on with a number more of a list. I yeah. cut them short there. But uh, he knew how to surround himself by some quality people. Yeah, he attracted them, and especially in the Twilight Zone, because, again, at that point, you know, Rod Serling was so prestigious, and he had such a reputation that people really did want to work for him. People wanted to do those shows. Uh, Jack Klugman, particularly, I mean, Jack Klugman would say, and this is not hyperbole, he would say, I don't have to read the script. Uh, if it has Rod Serling's name on it, I'm going to do it. And that, and that was true. Uh, he really he really felt that way, and, and a lot of people did at that point. Now, did he socialize with any of these actors? I don't. I didn't ever hear about that, or maybe I'm wrong. He did. Uh, he did. He was friends with, with some of them his his I think one of his best friend was was Dick Berg a producer um, a producer of a lot of a lot of different series at the time uh, so he was uh, friends with you know with some of the people on his level as far as executives go right uh, but yeah he did he he was friendly with some of the actors as well now let's turn a little bit now we know he maybe you don't know you'll learn more about it in the book and we mentioned it a little bit here that he joined the military at 18 years old it was World War two correct sure yep. and it was a paratrooper and saw some some time some he, action yeah he he saw some 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 terrible action, unfortunately. Um, yeah, he, he he volunteered for the Army the day after high school graduation. And Rod Serling uh, was born on Christmas Day, 1924. And in those days, Binghamton High School, their graduation was in January. It was January 6th or something like that. So he... he uh, volunteer for the army. He was barely 18 years old. He had just turned 18 a couple weeks earlier, and he wanted to be a paratrooper. That was his his idea. Somehow he got this idea in his head that that's what he would like to do, uh, and he got he got his wish. He was assigned to the 11th Airborne, a 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And what happened was that Parachute Infantry Regiment was used as an infantry. They were you know they only really did one combat jump on on Luzon, but before that they were used as an infantry in Lady. In the Philippines, and he saw some heavy combat in the Philippines and some some terrible, uh, some terrible things. And he came back from it a different person. He came back uh, with I think it's a it's a given he had a post traumatic stress disorder, and uh, he dealt with that for the rest of his life. Now, did he deal with it through writing? I presume is what we're saying. No or doubt, in some ways. no doubt. Uh, yeah, he he admitted that he he began to write as a way of therapy, as a form right. of therapy to get through some of this trauma that he had dealt with. And it had to have given him uh, some of the pessimism that's shown in some of the work, such as uh, the elegy, the antidote. Give us the antidote. There is no antidote, Captain. Even now, the eternifying fluid is coursing through your veins. But why? Why us? Because you are here, and you are men. And while there are men, there can be no peace. 
So, I mean, uh, right? Am I wrong? Did that inform him in that, in that regard? Oh, yeah, no doubt. And the interesting thing about that, uh, that particular episode, that's actually a Charles Beaumont episode. Uh, he didn't write that, but it's it's interesting that so many, the other writers very were very much in the same wavelength as Serling in a lot of these ways. I think a lot of Beaumont stuff, I mean, Beaumont stuff was certainly very, very different in terms of the his storytelling technique, but in something like that, that could have come from Rod Serling. Right. He could have said that exact line. Um, George Clayton Johnson does the same thing in a couple of episodes where you think, well, Rod would have said that same thing, you know, uh, even though it was a different type of story. So so that's what gave the Twilight Zone some of its cohesiveness, is that these other writers did come from the same school as right, Rod Serling. Right, it's hard to sometimes to tell who wrote which episode. Sometimes, yes. Uh, let's take a look a little bit about Rod Serling speaking about something that's a little cautionary tale for us all. I heard your voice do several cancer commercials. I, I guess the sense of that is what you're trying to say is right. that to do as I say, not do as I do. Uh, I'm addicted, man. I got the monkey on my back, and its name is nicotine, and my child is one of my kids is in this audience and is probably hating every time I take a drag. And I wish to God I didn't have the habit. I swear to God. I've tried to kick it several times. You know, very sad. He died at 50 years old from a relation, a, a disease or whatever. Well, what did he die from related to smoking, no? Yeah, well, he basically almost died on the table. He had a heart, uh, heart bypass surgery, and uh, it didn't work out well. Right, and so a cautionary tale. And uh, let's take a look at a more positive thing. He looked at the future of television in 1972, and look what he said about it. What do you envision as being the future of the industry? My guess is that ultimately cassettes, paid things that you can purchase and insert into the machine, are going to wreak a tremendous change in, in what you're currently viewing. I think you're going to see a lot of full-length theater, Major motion pictures. Guy was uh, no fool. Let's put it that way, right? It's 1972, and and VCRs really didn't become right. commercially av- available till like 78, or you know, or or even later. So yeah, he was definitely ahead of the curve. He, and we're ahead of the curve here, just peeking into a little bit of Rod Serling's life. Work and Imagination with Nicholas Parisi. Uh, please go to Amazon.com and buy this book. I'm telling you, we will. You will put on. It's one of these books you will put on your shelf and revisit again and again because uh, there's so much there. It will inspire you to watch some of these shows, not only The Twilight Zone but some of these other movies. And uh, thank you, Nicholas Parisi, for being here. We've had a great time, and uh, I wish you well with the book. Thank you, Doug. It was, it was a lot of fun. All right, great. We'll be back uh, next week, and everything old is new again with more. Take a look at world of pop culture entertainment as we see it. <laughs> 